Support for this episode comes from Cyber Reason. If you're in charge of defending your organization from cyber attackers, you know how important it is to put an end to those attacks every single time. But those attackers only need to be successful once. Cyber Reason reverses the attacker's advantage and gives defenders like you the wisdom to uncover, understand, and piece together multiple threats. Plus, the precision focus to end cyber attacks instantly. Cyber Reason. End cyber attacks from endpoints to everywhere. Learn more at cyberreason.com. This episode is brought to you by Adyen. Adyen is the payments platform for today, tomorrow, and whatever comes next. With Adyen's single solution, it's simple to accept all kinds of payments, in-app, online, in-store, touch-free, and beyond. And it seamlessly adapts with your business. So keep your customers happy and your business growing with Adyen. Business, not boundaries. Hello, and welcome. I'm Nilay Patel. My guest today is Adam Masseri, who is the Facebook executive in charge of Instagram. This title is simply Head of Instagram. Masseri started at Facebook over a decade ago as a designer, and he's held a number of important roles in the company since then. At one point, he was responsible for Facebook's entire news feed and the algorithms behind it. He came to Instagram as head of product and then took over the platform entirely when founders Kevin Systrom and Mike Krieger left Facebook in late 2018. All of that means that Masseri has a broad view of Facebook, its capabilities, and its challenges. And Facebook has a lot of challenges right now. The attack on the Capitol was at least in part driven by conspiracy theories and misinformation on social media. All of the major platforms have now banned or restricted Donald Trump, prompting a reckoning about content moderation, free speech, and the role Facebook plays in maintaining a healthy democracy. There's also a major antitrust lawsuit from the Federal Trade Commission in 48 states, which seeks to break up Facebook entirely. And there's new competition from TikTok, which has taken over Facebook's relevance to the culture in surprising ways. Adam and I talked about all of these things, but of course, we spent most of our time talking about how to run a creative platform like Instagram at scale while keeping users and democracy safe. Adam told me he agrees with the decision to ban President Trump from Facebook. He's worried about the fallout, and he isn't happy the decision had to be made, but he agrees with it. We also talked about how much responsibility the platforms have for what their ranking algorithms promote, and where he thinks the government should step in and set clear rules for content moderation. And of course, we talked about Instagram as a product. Adam told me he's not yet happy with how the TikTok competitor Reels is doing, and that there are too many video formats on Instagram between Reels, Stories, The Feed, and IGTV. It sounds like things are going to get simplified this year. One thing that really jumped out at me about this conversation is how Adam is trying to manage a three-part feedback loop. Instagram not only gives people the creative tools to express themselves in new ways, but also a huge distribution platform with access to a massive audience. And that means Instagram also has to police what people share and what it amplifies. Pay attention to how the first half of this conversation is about content moderation and making certain things harder to share, and how the second half is about competing with TikTok and making certain kinds of video easier to create and share. The balance between creation and moderation feels like the hardest problems for social platforms to solve in the years to come. Okay, Adam Masseri, head of Instagram. Here we go. Adam Masseri, you're the head of Instagram. Welcome. Thanks for having me. It's it's nice to see you, sort of, I guess, not in person, because I feel like I mostly hear from you via Twitter. So it's kind of nice to actually like get direct to the source. We'll see if I can sand down the edges of my Twitter persona in person. <laughs> you tell me if it's better or worse. 
I won't hold my breath. There's a lot to talk about here. There's a lot in the news. Social platforms are in the news in a lot of different ways lately. But I like to start this show by asking people for their decision-making frameworks. And you have been, you've been at Facebook for, I think, 12 years. You've had a, a number of roles there. I'm assuming your, your framework has evolved over time. You're now the head of Instagram. Give me a sense of how you make decisions and how that has changed as you've moved through your career at Facebook. That's a good question. I think the first thing to put out there is I try and delegate as many decisions as I can. I think that a risk that anybody who runs a large organization has is that they become a bottleneck for decisions. And the truth is the breadth of decisions we need to make at Instagram is so wide that there's no way I can, one, be on top of all of them, but two, actually be deep enough in the details in all of them to make really informed or insightful decisions. So first and foremost, I try to delegate as much as I can. I don't think I did a particularly good job of that earlier in my career. Career, So I, I think I was a pretty stereotypical early lead, micromanaging, passionate, hothead type. <laughs> but then for the decisions I do make, I try and just make sure I keep top of mind what our values are. I try to make sure I bias towards longer term thinking. I think it's really easy to get pulled into a more reactionary capacity. And I try to make sure I think about what Instagram is most focused on. And usually the two groups, for instance, that we care about most are young people and creators. So I often try to think through, is this decision going to benefit those groups or not? Because we often put those groups first whenever we can. So all those things go into making any given decision. But hopefully I make less and less over time. Uh, I've been paging through the Barack Obama memoir that he wrote. Of his, he's going to do it in two parts. So the first one is just the early part of office. And he says that one of the things he learned about being president is that by the time a decision gets to him, it's an impossible decision. Because if there was a right answer, someone else would have made it in the somewhere else in the government. But if it gets to him, it means there's no good choice and he's screwed. Is that kind of how you feel? That's kind of like what you're describing in a more positive way. No, I definitely, I mean, feel that way. I'm, my, the decisions I make don't have the same gravity that his uh, were, but I, or did. But when I first became head of Instagram, one of the first things that surprised me was how often a decision would be escalated to me. And there would be two people who I deeply trusted, who I thought were both brilliant and just completely disagreed on something important. <laughs> and I would have to be making the call. So I, I, yes, I think that the more senior you get, the more likely that the decisions you get, you have to make are really just deciding between what's the least bad option. They're almost never easy calls, but that's the job. Well, you know, the reason I kind of leapt to the Obama comparison is we often think of Facebook as a state, right? It's big. It touches a lot of the people in the world it has an outsized power and perceived power over things that happen. Mm. And it's, it's often easy to think of particularly Mark Zuckerberg as a head of state. I think sometimes he carries himself that way. What is your relationship as the head of Instagram to the larger state of Facebook? Do you think of Instagram as a constituent part of that larger entity in the way that I don't know, Illinois is a constituent part of the United States or is it, Ooh. is it more separate? There's an analogy. Yeah. yeah I can see, I could see that maybe. I mean, look, I think there are, we're obviously hesitant to liken ourselves to governments for obvious reasons, but I do think there are, I mean, there are similar challenges, right? We, we have a large group of people or community or cons 
constituency that um, relies on us. There's different groups have different values. They disagree. And we're always trying to manage that and be responsive to our community, but also be true to our own values. I think that honestly, we would like to, I mean, maybe to connect your first and second question, I would, and I know Mark would also like to move more decisions from us to actual governments. Uh, I think decisions like what constitutes, you know, um, what can and cannot be on our platform. So I don't know, pick an issue, inciting violence, hate speech, etc. A lot of these things actually would be great if there were broad standards that were agreed upon and set by not every government in every country around the world, but at least a few organizations or broad ones. That would actually make more sense, um, I think, in a lot of ways. But I think that how to try to answer your question directly, how does Instagram relate to the broader company? I think, yeah, maybe you could think of us as a, as a, as a state. I think that people, it's not quite, doesn't quite work because there's a lot of people who use Instagram and use Facebook too. And you can't be in Illinois and in Florida at the same time. <laughs> um, but we try and we try and share as much as we can. Like for instance, on content policy, we have the same rules because it's helps us keep more people safe and make less mistakes. So maybe you could try to just destroy the analogy. There are some federal laws and rules and there's some local laws and rules and that's okay. Um, but we try to share as much as we can um, because honestly, the Instagram team is lean and mean and we want to stay that way, but we want to get as much leverage from the broader company as we can. Another Facebook company has been in the news this week. There was a big controversy with WhatsApp and its privacy policy. Yes. Privacy policy changes, merging with Facebook. People are unhappy. They've delayed the rollout. Instagram has already merged its messaging infrastructure with Facebook. Yes, it has. How has that gone? Are people reacting to it? No, not in the same way. No, it's been it's actually that's been going relatively well. So to be clear on WhatsApp, they changed their terms of service. I don't think we effectively communicated it, what that was changing this week. Privacy did not change in terms of your messages, your personal messages or your messages between friends. It, the only real substantive change was how data is stored when you message uh, official business account and they're using official business account in the business app. Um, so actually, there's just a bunch of misinformation flying around on our platform. The irony on that is not lost on me. So it's a, you know, a nice humbling mo meta moment for us. But I think that the real issue wasn't just that we didn't communicate it well, is that we didn't make it clear what the value was in the moment. I think that when you make a change, people are gonna be nervous because any large app is just gonna have to change. Otherwise they're gonna become irrelevant over time. But People use it a lot. They care about it a lot. They, and they get upset when things change because change is uncomfortable. So when you do make a change, you need to make sure that the value is immediately evident. And so when we um, did our, it's not the same thing as the terms of service change, but when we started to merge with Messenger's experience, it became clear that there was value because all of a sudden you had all of these features that Messenger had that we didn't have yet. So you could reply to messages, you know, uh, you know, as opposed to just have one linear thing, you had a bunch of new, you know, reactions and customization tools, et cetera, a vanishing mode. And so I think that there was a lot of evident value. And so people actually by and large seem to really enjoy it. And they've been adopting it and that's been great. Whereas when WhatsApp changed its terms of service this week, it was changed. It was not clearly articulated and there was no immediately evident value. And so that's a bad combination. That's a recipe for misinformation memes. That's what we got. And so we are now scrambling to uh, correct the record. One of the things I've actually heard Mark say in the past is we have more people at Facebook working on trust and safety than work on Instagram, right? It's, there's a bigger team mm -hmm. working on policy issues across the company. 
than working on Instagram. How big is Instagram? Like how many people work on Instagram? Uh, I mean, it depends on how you count. Okay. It's, it's impossible. I mean, a few thousand, I mean, it really depends on how you count because there's a lot of people who work on Instagram, but some of their time, but not all of their time. There's people who report to me directly. There's report people who dotted line to me, but I mean, none of that really matters. I, I, I say that too, all the time. So actually when I joined Instagram, I didn't, I wasn't running it. I was the head of product. I had come from running newsfeed at Facebook for a number of years. And I told everybody I was going to be a sponge and I wasn't going to push for any change for a couple of months. And while I ramped up and tried to better understand Instagram, the product, the employee base, the values. But the one place where I almost immediately broke my promise was on safety and integrity, where when I got into the details and I was pretty, I don't know what to call it, pretty interested in the details, having spent the last couple of years being responsible for fake news on Facebook and a bunch of other gnarly safety problems. I found that we were just running our own stuff for the most part and our team was tiny. And so I made the team pivot and to essentially integrating the technology and the work from the engineers who worked on safety across the rest of the company. And I actually lost a bunch of people, not because they didn't agree that it was a better way to keep people safe on Instagram over the long run necessarily, but it just wasn't why they signed up to be on the team. And so it was pretty painful for six months on that front. And I, I actually lost some credibility with some of the people um, but now that's actually one of our strongest teams. So I'm proud of that, but I, I don't know. I think it's good, but yeah, we're, we are, we are lean and mean a few thousand people, uh, which is a ton of people, but not a lot of people considering that over a billion people use Instagram. So what is actually, uh, this was another one of our notes. Uh, the last public number you've given for Instagram's user base was two years ago. It was 1 billion. You're very proud of that milestone. You just said over a billion. Yes. What is the latest number? Oh, I can't, I can't, I can't share the latest number of stock. I would, I mean, as much as I'd love to beat our chest about our, our growth, I will say I've been really um, excited about our momentum um, this past year, particularly in terms of how fast we've grown, which has been great to see, particularly around, I mean, most of our growth is not in the U.S. So we're, we're in, you know, our bubble is probably very U.S. biased, but for all these platforms like ours, most of the growth is outside of the country in which we're headquartered. Where's your fastest growth? Uh, India, I think, is probably the fastest right now. Uh, India is coming online fast. I think everyone knows this. You're seeing hundreds of millions of people coming online over the next couple of years. The access to data is going up. The cost of data is going down. You had Geo, which is Reliance Geo is a carrier out there. So for those listening who aren't familiar, they basically offered free data for half a year or maybe even more, which created a price war between all the carriers. That was a fun story because that's like a brother whose other brother ran another carrier and it's like a family yeah. feud. I don't know. It's all sorts of fun drama. And so we've just seen an immense amount of uh, momentum there, especially as we started to focus more on our Android experience um, about a year and a half or two years ago. Fastest growth in India. You're over a billion. Are you under 2 billion? I can't say. I love, I love how leading that is. It's like, I'm doing what I can. It's one of the tricks. It's one of the tricks. Hey, I gotta, I gotta try it every way I can. Actually that, that, that does lead into the next stuff. So I like to start with everyone's frameworks because I like to see how those frameworks are expressed, uh, in complicated decisions. Instagram is growing really fast. It's part of this larger entity, Facebook, that has a lot of controversy associated with it all of the time, but specific to Instagram, you have rolled out a lot of new features, you have a big competitor in TikTok. There is the Facebook antitrust lawsuit. And there is, I would say, a content moderation debate in the United States that feels like it's at a tipping point. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I think we should start there because I think it feeds into almost everything else that we will talk about. Just give people a sense right now at this second, what is the status of 
Trump's Instagram presence, Trump's Facebook relationship, and what happens next? So we have no plans to reinstate his account on any of the platforms. But right now, if I'm honest, we're less focused on his specific account and more focused on making sure that we do everything we can to prevent any coordination of violence happening on our platforms. I mean, we're, we've got the inauguration coming up in a couple of days. You had a, mob, a violent mob attack the Capitol last week. It, uh, I mean, we're just very focused on doing everything we can both changing our policies, updating our enforcement, building products, just trying to reduce the likelihood that anything is coordinated on the platform. So that's the primary focus. Once we get through the next week or two, then I think we can pop back up and um, talk about the president's account. But we don't have any plans right now to reinstate them. How much of your time do you spend on moderation decisions and policy decisions? Less than I used to, um, because I've pushed so hard to centralize most of that work. Um, and so we just now draft as much as we can off of Facebook company policy decisions. Sometimes I got to get, I have to dive into the details because there are some things that are different about Instagram. Um, so for instance, we have surfaces like, sorry, it's like a tech term surfaces. We have parts of the app like explore the second tab where you just have a grid of photos. Facebook doesn't really have that. So a lot of the content policies assume that you can see all the context around a piece of content, including the caption where we're showing photos without the caption in that context. So your policies around self-injury have to be different, for instance. So you might talk about self-injury and show a scar and say, I'm 40 days clean. And that's a way of getting support and celebrating your sort of journey and your safety. But if you show a scar without that, without that context, you know, maybe that's okay, maybe that's not. So I get involved um, from time to time, often trying to make sure that our policies that have often been written for Facebook first, because it's been around longer, it's a bigger team, et cetera, it's the name of the company, are adapted and uh, appropriate and responsible in the Instagram context, which has some important differences. Were you in the room when the decision around Trump was made? There are no rooms anymore. Um, so it's an easy, it's oh, easy to say no to that. Wow. I'm teasing you. I'm teasing you. Were you, were you a principal in that decision? No, ultimately, this was a Facebook company call, not an Instagram call. And I think that's the right thing. Did you, you just got an email, like, it's done. And you're like, okay. And you're like, moved on. No, 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 there's a lot of, there's, no, no, it wasn't quite that simple. That would be, that would be, I mean, that could, I mean, okay, I would be okay with that. I agree with the decision, I think is the more important thing. I'm really worried about it. I'm not happy about it, but I definitely agree with it. I saw that Cheryl Sandberg uh, gave a quote at a, a Reuters conference where she said, the attack was not planned on the Facebook platform. And then I heard from a lot of people at Facebook and Facebook companies saying, what? Like, we're spending all of our time trying to tamp this down. They're like, it is happening here. It did happen here. We're working on it. You just said you're working on it. Have you tamped it down to zero or are you seeing it pop up and you're trying to push it down? That feel, There feels like a big shift there. Yeah. Well, a couple of things. One is it, we, it's impossible to tamp anything down to zero. There's, you know, over a billion people on Instagram, there's billions of people on our apps, you know, between WhatsApp and Facebook and Messenger. And if the, if success is perfection, like nothing bad happens on the platform, then we're always going to end up failing because at some level, social media broadly, and especially if you include messaging apps and technology, is just a reflection of humanity, right? All of a sudden we communicated offline. Now we're also communicating online. And because it's we're communicating online, we can see that. And some of that's pretty ugly and gnarly. Some of it's great and wonderful. Um, and so, but there's never going to be perfection there. Now, what Cheryl 
said, if you read the full quote, was that she um, that most of the coordination was happening on platforms other than ours because of the work that we've done. Actually, if you look at the conversation, because she got hit pretty bad for that statement on Twitter, especially, but in the media, the conversation actually pretty quickly moved to were you, was the event or the, um, I don't want to call it a protest, the, the mob coordinated on the platform to were people radicalized on the platform and then they participated in this thing. So that is an important, subtle, but a very important shift. And it's a different question. I think it's another important question. I think that from where I sit, it's important that we take a look at, does social media radicalize people? And if so, what can we do about it? I think that social media isn't good or bad, like any technology just is. But social media specifically is a great amplifier. It can amplify good and bad. We, it's our responsibility to make sure that we amplify more good and less bad. And I can give lots of examples of both. But it's not just about social media. I mean, why do conspiracy theories and sort of where you're seeing, at least if you're going to talk about the Capitol event last week, these sort of radical right fringe narratives and opinions appeal to so many people can't be completely blamed on social media. Yes, I think we have to take a look at ourselves and make sure that we are being thoughtful. We're not making anything worse and there's always room to improve. But why does why do why do people trust the government in this country so little that those narratives are resonating in the first place? That's a bigger societal problem than just any one platform or any one industry. And so I think it's important to look at the whole picture. Now, if you work in tech, you're under a ton of scrutiny and you have been for years. And I think that's fundamentally a good thing. It's super uncomfortable and unpleasant at times, but <laughs> at the end of the day, you know, you learn, uh, you've, you, you weed out the noise and you focus on the signal and you get better. But I do think we should scrutinize the whole system because there's a lot that's broken right now. Um, and it's not just technology. I, I agree with you there. I, I think that conspiracy theories have always been part of the fabric of American culture, but rarely have they felt so dominant and very rarely have they expressed themselves in, in, in such like a, a mass acceptance of violence. I can't look back and say, well, that's social media didn't play a small ro role in that. Right. It, it feels like the amplification power of social media, not just on your platform, but on every platform. YouTube, Twitter, what have you, has fed into that in a pretty real way. So one of the questions broadly is how much responsibility should a platform like yours take for what it amplifies? You know, and there's a pretty unsophisticated debate about the algorithm, but right, like Facebook runs on algorithmic application. You used to run the newsfeed. You I, I always just imagine that you had a, a huge board full of dials in front of you. Yeah, yeah, just twisting them as fast as I can. You would just turn <laughs> up some days and we get a lot of traffic and you turn it down some other days. Yeah. <laughs> How much responsibility do you, do, you, do you feel for what the algorithm promotes and what it amplifies? Well, I'd say a few different things. And then I'll answer your question more directly. I, the thing that when we talk about responsibility, particularly with regards to you know amplification, algorithmic transparency, algorithmic bias, these important issues, and especially if you think about content problems in the U.S. specifically, like conspiracy theories, the thing that I care about most in the U.S. is polarization. I think what we're seeing is the country is becoming increasingly polarized year after year. By the way, that trend dates as far back as we've pretty much measured polarization. So long before technology and the internet, you know, 60, 70 years at this point. Now, can technology make that worse? Sure. So we have to make sure that we're not doing our part. But I think that you know, there's a lot of things at play. I actually think Ezra Klein's book, Why We're Polarized, is probably the best book I've read on the issue, though I'm still trying to read as much as I can find. Actually, if you've got any good recs, please let me know. 
for our responsibility, because I want to make sure I'm answering your question, uh, when it comes to ranking, I still really believe in ranking. I think ranking is a really good way of making the most of people's time. There's way more out there than you and I could consume on a given day. Ranking specifically means where you open up Facebook or Instagram and the algorithm ranks what you see. Yeah. So I like to call algorithms ranking because algorithm just sounds like this robot that has its own agency that goes around making decisions behind the scenes like the Wizard of Oz. And I feel like also too often companies or anybody really hides behind algorithms um, as like as a way to absolve responsibility. Where an algorithm or ranking, all it does is it optimizes for what you build it to optimize for. And so you are responsible for being transparent about that, making sure that you're being thoughtful and responsible in what you're doing, et cetera. So I say ranking because I try to make sure that we are not separating the work and our, and our own responsibility, but they are sort of all meshed together. But what we do is, you know, we try to look at all the things you could see because you followed someone on Instagram and we sort them by how interested we think you might be in them. Recency is an important input, but not the only input. And we show you what we think you're most interested in at the top. And this means that people, you know, you see, you know, if my sister got engaged and she lives in Europe, by the way, that's probably more interesting to me than if my brother ate a po' boy. <laughs> and even if he, even if he posted it a minute ago. And so we'll show my sister's post first, hopefully over mine. Now that has consequences, right? That affects what people see. And that means that we are expressing some sort of value judgment, right? So we are valuing relevancy for lack of a better concept. And we have to be careful because we can't really know what matters to you or what's relevant to you. So we have to use proxies and those proxies can be gamed and they can lead to problematic outcomes. So I think there's a, there's a responsibility there, but it's not about, uh, not at a content level. It's not about deciding what to say or what to write, you know, what issues the most important, what news stories are the most important in a given day. It's at a sort of execution level or a, I don't know, like how you build, like it's how you build what you build that where you have to be responsible and and it's what the outcomes are you have to be thoughtful about as well. Uh, it's just more complicated than a typical, than like if we were a newspaper and we were just figuring out what's on the front page. It's a platform. It's different. Uh, but there's a lot of responsibility there, and I don't want to shy away from that. One of the things you said about your decision-making framework, you said you take into account young people and creators. And you also said we think about, you think about the values of Instagram. And one of the things that I wonder about is companies like Facebook, other big Silicon Valley companies, they have a very clear set of internal values, right? You, you want your team to be inclusive. You want to be diverse. You want to, you know, internal company values are, are pretty uniform. People know what they are. Do you think your product expresses those values? Because the product reflects the user base in a different way, right? Yeah, I, I, I think it does. It's just more indirect. So, I mean, we value speech, obviously. We take a lot of flack defending things we don't agree with and people's right to say those things. We value safety, uh, particularly around creating an environment where people feel safe to express themselves. Those things are clearly intention at times, and you know, we have to navigate that tension. At Instagram specifically, you know, we yeah, we value young people, we value creators, we value visual expression, um, we value creativity, we value simplicity, we value craft. And I think those things are all reflected in the product to a certain degree or another. Um, does that mean that everything in the product aligns with those values completely? Absolutely not, right? There's, I'm sure, all sorts of content on Instagram and people on Instagram who have different values and their experiences are reflected in those values. But I do think some of those threads are 
I don't know what the word is, but, you know, just widely there across the platform. So for instance, we don't support links or text posts really in feed. And that's because we're focused more on visual communication. And so everyone's feeds are more visual and less text heavy. Is that good or bad? I don't think it's really either. I think it's just just what Instagram is. That's trying to differentiate from Facebook and from Twitter and from other platforms. But it's hard to wrap your head around what it is as a platform because it's personalized, which by the way, is another value of ours. We value personalization. So your Instagram is going to be very different than mine and that's okay. But that does make it harder to really put your finger on what exactly Instagram is um, because it's, it's not one thing. It's a different thing for everybody who uses it. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to dive more into moderation on Instagram. Want to end cyber attacks? Here's what it takes. It takes an army of battle-tested defenders on a mission to fight off attackers, even the ones working under the cover of digital darkness. And those defenders need to move, think, and adapt faster than those attackers with help from advanced tech that can spot an attack before it's fully formed. With CyberReason, you can protect your data on computers, mobile devices, servers, and the cloud from cyber attacks, and get alerts when it matters most. To end cyber attacks, it takes the brightest minds in global cyber intelligence, working to deliver future-ready protection to guard your data wherever the fight moves. CyberReason is ready to win the battle with you and for you. CyberReason. End cyber attacks from endpoints to everywhere. Learn more at cyberreason.com. That's C-Y-B-E-R-E-A-S-O-N.com. All business owners know that governments are going to want their cut of every transaction. Sales tax is obvious. Businesses deal with that all the time. But there are also transaction-based taxes on everything from filling up your gas tank to video streaming to wine and spirits, even vacation rentals by owner. That's where Avalara comes in. They've become known as pioneers in the world of sales tax automation. Whatever you sell, there's probably a tax for it, and Avalara has you covered. If you're selling internationally, Avalara's global solutions can help manage tax compliance for VAT, GST, as well as cross-border transactions. And with more than 1,000 signed partner integrations, Avalara likely integrates with the ERP, e-commerce, mobile payment, and point-of-sale systems you use today. Find out how your business can save time and reduce risk at avalara.com. Avalara, tax compliance done right. And we're back with Adam Masseri. So Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter, he put up a tweet thread saying he thought his decision to ban Trump was was correct based on the threats to physical safety that, that Twitter had. But I read that thread as feeling kind of angsty and kind of worried about what happens next. It, it sounds like that's where you are, too. Yeah, I'm more explicit about my concerns, maybe. I'm definitely worried about what happens next. I think that Look, last week was a pretty extraordinary situation. You know, we had a sitting president incite a riot and point a mob at the Capitol building to try and prevent the peaceful transfer of power to a democratically elected official. And by the way, so we care all about free speech a lot. We take a lot, like I said, of criticism about that. But to care about free speech and to sort of um, pursue that only really works within a, on a foundation of democracy. Because it's kind of like the context in which that sits. And so when the democracy itself is attacked, that is just a big deal and kind of changes the game for us. So we're being very, I don't know what to call intense this week about trying to do it, pulling levers and trying to make sure that we do everything we can to reduce the likelihood of any more violence, particularly directed at undermining democracy happening, um, particularly this week. Uh, we obviously changed our policies around stop the steal and, and designating that term, but we've got more stuff coming out next week. But this has been a huge focus of ours, and a lot of what we've talked about at the leadership level at the company over the last week, because 
it's such a big deal. And it's so, I don't know, extraordinary for lack of a better word. But of course I'm worried about it. I think that it's shedding a bunch of light on the fact that platforms like ours have a lot of power. And I think that scares people. And I think that's, that's reasonable. It's, you know, that's something that we've talked about a lot, but it sheds a lot more light on it. I think you also saw a bunch of other companies do a bunch of other things. I mean, to see Amazon and, and um, Apple and Google essentially take out Parler at, you know, further down the stack is a whole other type of content decision. I think if there's a silver lining, it's that we'll talk about hopefully the whole stack and where is it appropriate for companies to make decisions and where should there be regulation and have governments make decisions. And, you know, hopefully we'll, that debate will be more informed for this. But this is going to bring on an immense amount of scrutiny on the whole industry. And I think it's going to be really painful for all of us. Plus, I just think it's a dark day when you have social media companies having to take down the president's accounts. It's just, it's just bad news for everybody, honestly. You said the, the leadership of Facebook and you are, are focused on the next week and the violence that might occur next week at the inauguration. Does it feel like a palpable shift in your sense of responsibility or Facebook's sense of responsibility to democracy? Or has that been building over time? I mean, I think that we've always cared a lot about democracy and we've cared a lot about safety. I think that the big shift was really in the wake of the 2016 presidential election with all the scrutiny that we were under. I think we did work to try to protect that election, but we were focused on the wrong things. And I think that in general, one of our biggest mistakes as a company is that we didn't get as serious as we should have, as early as we should have around safety and integrity more broadly. Any new startup isn't going to focus on safety issues. You're just trying to make sure what you have, you know, works. When I joined Facebook, we were just trying to catch up with MySpace. That's what <laughs> that was like. That was that's how long I've been here. But at some point, you get to a scale where your responsibility gets significant enough that you need to really embrace that and lean into that. And I think we should have done that years before we did. Over the last four years, I think we've done a, a lot. I'm proud of that work. Are we where we need to be? No, this work never ends. So that answer to that question is always going to be no. But we've made an immense amount of progress. I think that one of the reasons why we can react this week as quickly as we can is because we've built up a bunch of processes and technologies and, you know, I don't know, guidelines, all the different kind of infrastructure you need to be able to sort of react on the fly. So I don't think this marks a shift in how we watch responsibility we feel. I do think this is going to mark a big shift and how people think about and how governments and regulators and policymakers think about technology, uh, content moderation, and safety online. I was talking to a friend of mine who runs a trust and safety team for a, a much smaller platform. And what struck me about it is just how, how sad she seems about this moment, this inflection point. Here, I'm just going to read you what she wrote to me, and I'm curious for your reaction. We all want to run creative platforms and now we literally have to fight Nazis all day, and they're claiming to be free speech champions, right? And what she was expressing was she began her career feeling like a defender of free speech and free expression, and now she's in the opposite mode. Do you have that same feeling of, of sadness or angst that all the processes you're describing are designed to clamp down, even though what you're trying to protect is the core of expression? Uh, not quite the same feeling, but I mean, look, I... Having spent a lot of time on these issues myself, I think that the sort of um, the tone of sort of being deflated, I think maybe resonates more specifically than the idea. I think that we're going to continue to try and bias towards allowing speech on our platforms. 
I'm sure we're going to be criticized for that. I think that's okay. I think at the end of the day, we have to do what we think is right and best. I think that there's a lot of real good that comes out of giving people a voice and allowing people to express themselves. And we don't talk about that as much because it's not really good news, but I think it's important. I try to keep focus on that, you know? So I don't know. I'm, I'm from a family of artists in some way. My mom is an architect. My brother's a musician. My sister's a furniture designer. Uh, I used to be a designer, even though I wasn't that good at it. <laughs> Instagram tries to be a platform where creatives can really express themselves. And I think we've got a lot of strength with visual creatives, particularly. And I want to make sure that we don't lose sight of that. You know, while, yes, we need to identify problems and address those problems, we need to not forget that we're here to help people connect with those they love and be inspired by the world around them. That's, you know, we're not just here to find hate speech and take it off the platform, though that is a responsibility that we have to live up to as well. For the thing that honestly jumps to my mind, though, as you were reading our quote, is just when you were building these safety and integrity teams, you often, when you get, when you try to build them quickly, are moving people from other teams onto them, but they were, they signed up to, you know, build a new version of events or, you know, make a cool AR filter. It's a different mindset. It's a different skill set. It's a different approach entirely. And so I've tried to make sure that my teams all bring a bit more of an adversarial mindset to what they do. So when they build something, they think about not only how it can be used, but how it can be abused. But for the safety and integrity team specifically, I've tried to hire people who are just passionate about keeping people safe and who have this, those specific skill sets, you know, understand the intersection of policy and, you know, classifiers and technology. Because you have to build sustainable teams that are going to stay around forever. You don't finish these problems, right? The people who are trying to abuse platforms change their tactics as you shut down, you know, vectors for abuse. And so you have to build teams that can be permanent. And so you got to find people who are, who get, who get energy from this work, who don't get deflated from the work. That's really important. We've talked about lawmakers a few times and the sense that regulation is coming what kind of help do you think you need from governments, particularly the United States government? And, and what are you anticipating now that there's a new administration? I mean, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see what the new administration focuses on, obviously, now that the Democrats are going to control both houses. Um, I, my sense is they're mostly focused on the pandemic right now and you know vaccine distribution. And I think that's good. I don't know. There's a bunch of different things. We want to work closely with regulators wherever we can. We think that they have a really important role to play. And we can, you know, in certain cases in countries where, you know, there is rule of law, we can collaborate in really productive ways as well. The one I'm most particularly interested in is content and having there be clear guidelines about what is and what is not allowed. But also that we're thoughtful about that because you have to be careful because if you go too far, you start censoring people. If you don't go far enough, you have safety issues. And so it's a really delicate balance there. And there's a tension there. But the thing that the intersection sort of of what, I, what it seems to be that the new administration is focused on, what I think is a huge deal, not only here in the U.S., but around the world, and where I feel like we have an opportunity right now is definitely the vaccine and the pandemic. We've tried to do a lot to support people in these times, pushing them to good information when it wasn't clear what was going on, encouraging people to stay home accelerating a bunch of commerce tools to try and create support for small businesses that are really suffering, you know, and I think that those opportunities and challenges are going to change over the next year, right? Right now we are, at least in the U S really 
I'm not an expert on this, but it seems pretty clear that we're distribution constrained, not production constrained on the vaccine. That'll probably change as we get it together. And then eventually we'll probably be constrained by the number of people who want to even get the vaccine, right? Because there's a bunch of people who are worried about it who aren't necessarily anti-vaxxers. They're just, this was made really quickly, so they're nervous. So what can we do at Instagram and at Facebook? And what are the risks that are going to change as we go through those different phases? But how can we help people get good information, find places to get vaccinated? How can we deal with the inevitable misinformation that comes up? How do we deal with more difficult things like real information that is encouraging people not to take the vaccine. So for instance, these things are stored at really low temperatures. Something's probably going to go wrong somewhere because someone's, I don't know, going to open the door of the freezer truck too soon or whatever it is. And then someone's going to get sick. And then there's going to be a bunch of coverage of that. And that's going to not be misinformation. That's going to be real information, but it's going to be abused. What do we do in that state? So we're right now trying to think through all of these uh, potential opportunities to help, but also all these upcoming issues that are probably going to happen and figure out how we can look around some corners and get ready to do our part. Because, I mean, we were, we're really focused right now on, on the transfer of power here in the U.S., and that makes sense. But there's a global pandemic out there. There's people dying. There's businesses going under. L.A. is in terrible shape. London's in terrible shape. You know, so we want to make sure we don't lose sight of that broader picture and our either responsibilities to address problems, but also our opportunities to be part of solutions. Let me ask you a really threshold sort of mechanical question. How deeply into a post or video on Instagram can you hash meaning out of? Right. So I post an Instagram story saying, hey, everybody, the freezer door at the local hospital was left open overnight. Don't go get vaccinated today. Can you extract value from that and understand what I'm saying and know when and how to promote it? Uh, the short answer is no. I think that, I mean, we can definitely try to understand things about a, a video or a photo, but the truth is our systems are way less sophisticated than most people think they are. Most of how ranking works is based on, you know, taking a look at what you do. So you tend to like photos. This is a photo. You tend not to like Adam's photos. So we're going to rank this one lower. I know it's, it's, it's most of it's that simple. I mean, even in ads, people focus on targeting a lot, but most of it is like, what ads did you click on before? And then we do a lot of, you know, in recommendations. So things like explore where you're seeing something, not because you follow an account, but because you just showed up in a space and we're recommending something. A lot of that's based on what's called um, collaborative filtering or embeds, but basically it's you like, I don't know, surfing videos. We don't even know that they're surfing videos. You just like a bunch of these videos that happen to be about surfing. Here, we're looking to find a bunch of other people who like similar, those videos. What other videos do they like? So just sort of fanning out. So yes, we're, we're trying to build up more sophisticated or semantic understanding of content. So but that's usually at the topic level. So is this about baking or is this about soccer or is this about politics? But honestly, most of how ranking works is much simpler and less sophisticated than that. Yeah, and it's funny how the ghost in the machine always seems a lot smarter. Than, that's how I always think about ad targeting. Oh yeah, but your so your semantic understanding of the content is not it's not at the level where you, where I literally post a video to the grid, being like vaccines are available and that you can understand it and promote that specifically. The reason I ask is on the flip side, right? Like QAnon is an idea. It's not a set of keywords like stop the steal. It's not even a specific set of images, how do you approach something like that, which is a lot more diffuse if you can't semantically read into the posts? It's a good question. I think that 
one of the things I want to call out is that, well, all these systems that you build to try and address a problem like QAnon or to try and just, I don't know, make feed more interesting because uh, you're into surfing, so you should see more surfing. They're almost always a hybrid between technology and people. And often these things are put are positioned in opposition to each other. Like, you know, algorithms versus editors is like one of the, I was asked to speak at a panel about that once, and that's how they framed it. But the truth is, technology is good at certain things and bad at others. It's particularly good at scale. I mean, there's a lot of people on Instagram doing a lot of things, so we need technology to scale. And people are good at other things. People are better at nuance, uh, and technology is not particularly good at nuance. And so we rely on people to make a lot of content decisions about what to take down and what not to take down. And what you want to do when you're trying to, whatever your goal might be, you know, maybe just to make feed more interesting, maybe it's to remove hate speech from your platform, is leverage both, leverage technology and leverage people for their strengths to get the best possible outcome. And almost everything is always a combination. So for instance, if you're just trying to classify something, you want to have a, let's say we wanted to build a sports section in Explore. And you wanted to automatically populate that with all the cool sports content that you might like. The way you would do it is you'd first have to define sports, which is harder than it sounds. Then you'd have to write a bunch of guidelines for labelers to be able to implement that consistently. And then you would have them label tons of things, tens of thousands of images and say, this is sports, this is not sports, this is sports, this is not sports. You would do a bunch of QA stuff and like make sure that they were, you know, you double check and make sure that they're labeling well. And, you know, but you would get, you would do that. Then you'd end up with this big, what we would call a data set, but a bunch of examples of images, some sports, some not sports, labels. Then you go write a bunch of code to try and try to like figure out how to do that automatically. And you train that code on that data set. And then you start to run that code and you say, all right, here's a new image classifier. And they, and the classifier usually would spit back, this is 70% likely to be sports. And then you would evaluate the code with people again. You would have people say, how right and how wrong was, was this code so that you could then give the feedback back to the engineers and change the code. And you, it, so it's all, it's people at the beginning and at the end uh, and code in the middle and, you know, and, and around and around you go. And so it's always both. And so the thing to get to your question more specifically about QAnon that is really tough is when context is important. And so, for instance, it's easier to build a classifier for something like nudity. It's not as easy as it should be. You'd think a nipple's a nipple, but like a baby photo can get caught up all the time. But that's a lot easier than building a classifier for something like hate speech, where what if I said something that might be inappropriate, and if you said it, it might not be, based on who we are, or when, what context in which we said it, et cetera. Um, and so that doesn't mean it's impossible. It just means it takes longer and you're going to make more mistakes. So, but QAnon, is an, like you said, is an idea. So yeah, you can look for the word, the letters, QAnon. But context is super important, which is why, is, why it's more difficult to, do, to identify an idea at scale. It's because it requires context. We're going to take another quick break, but when we come back, I'll talk to Adam about the product of Instagram. Reels, IGTV, stories, all of the different formats on the platform. Everyone's spending a lot more time online now. It's where we work, learn, and do the bulk of our shopping. That's why e-commerce is really the only commerce, no matter what industry you're in, and why it's essential that your website can do the heavy lifting. Yext Answers can help. A website that looks nice is one thing, but what's the point of great design when people can't find anything on your site? Yext Answers adds critical function to your form by adding a best-in-class search engine to your website, so your customers get an official answer to every question. And not only will Yext give them a direct answer, you can also include key calls to action like buy now or schedule an appointment. 
That means more transactions for your business and much happier customers who will come back again and again. The best part, you can try Yext Answers for free. Setting up is easy. Just go to yext.com, that's Y-E-X-T, to start your trial and learn more about how Yext Answers can help your website grow your business. All right, we're back. Let's talk about Instagram as a product. You've launched a bunch of new features. You've launched Reels. You've launched IGTV. There's a bunch of shopping features. Um, I think you know that I'm a sucker for Instagram shopping. We appreciate your business. I'm very biased about it. I want to start with Reels. Reels launched first in, I believe, India. You brought it to the United States. Right now, it feels like TikTok is the center of the cultural conversation in a, in a huge way, right? It's where the dance has come from. It, uh, half of American teenagers are singing sea shanties this week, uh, which is remarkable. Is Reels on the path to, to get there, to compete with it? Are you, are you happy with it? No, I'm not yet happy with it. I, I mean, Reels has got momentum, so I'm excited about that. We're growing both in terms of how much people are sharing to Reels and how much people are consuming. Um, but we have a long way to go, and we have to be honest that TikTok is ahead. They get a lot of credit for really pioneering the format, and we're still mostly focused on table sticks, making sure that it's performant, it's reliable, that they're good creative tools, that we're decent at ranking content or video. Um, I think there's a lot of interesting ways in which we can differentiate over time. And I'm excited about those probably coming later this year. But right now we're mostly focused on what I would call, and what I tell the team is really just table sticks. Do you see the the sort of flood of re-uploaded TikToks on Reels as good, bad, or neutral? <sighs> I mean, I get excited every time I see a creator switch from uploading, re-uploading real, the TikToks to Reels to doing them natively. And, I, you know, I've seen more and more over time. So I, I appreciate that. But look, I think a lot, like you said, a lot of culture happens on TikTok. But I think a lot of culture also happens on Instagram. Culture isn't just entertaining videos. There's all sorts of important things um, in what we would think of as sort of as emerging culture and new culture. Um, but, yeah, I get excited when people switch over to be native. And I, we're seeing it happen. Um we're having a lot more progress in certain countries than other countries, but we are growing are growing around the world. Give me a status update on IGTV, which was the sort of the previous big launch. It is there. I think you're now incentivizing creators directly by paying them to make longer IGTV videos. How's that going? Uh, I mean, IGTV and video more broadly is doing well. There's a, a lot of demand for video. It seems to be insatiable. I do think that it's not clear to most people what IGTV is. And to date, IGTV has really just been longer Instagram videos. And that's probably a too nuanced a distinction to resonate with anybody. So we're looking about how we can, not just with IGTV, but across all of Instagram, simplify things a bit this year and consolidate ideas. Because last year we placed a lot of new bets. I think this year we have to go back to our focus on simplicity and craft. Um, but overall, video is doing really well, particularly during the pandemic. But in general, it's just, it's just been growing I think across all major platforms for many, many years now, it's, I think the shift to video is in some ways as important as the shift to mobile. So uh, I am excited about the momentum there. When you say consolidate the interface, um, there's a, a lot of Instagram now. There's there's the grid, there's stories, there's IGTV, there's reels. As I've talked to you and other folks at Instagram before, uh, there's a lot of pride in unshipping features and keeping the app lean. Would you unship IGTV and say, we're just not doing this? thing over there is the conversation that that broad no I, uh, I mean we would consider things that wild i don't think we're going to unship igtv though i think that we just need to evolve it forward right now there's 
too many different types of video. And I think the distinctions aren't that important. I also think there are other things too. I think the profile is too complicated. Um, there's a bunch of cleanup we need to do with the nav change. The, you know, there's things to clean up. And I think that we take pride in removing things, even though we inevitably make someone angry because someone loves the thing that you removed. <laughs> you should see my DMs after we removed the following tab and activity. It was like just so much hate for like six weeks. <laughs> but I think it's good practice. Some of the core features of TikTok, I'm thinking about the sea shanties a lot this week because it is it is just a remarkable, you would just never expect it. It kind of fits into the content moderation conversation, right? That the joy of the platform comes from emergent behaviors from users. You would never write a policy that predicts teenagers in America are going to do sea shanties for a week. Like, can't do it. Can't do it. But the specific interface, the product elements of TikTok that have led that to happen are things like Duet and Stitch, right? It's a video conversation in a way that Reels doesn't really have that yet. Is that is that kind of thing, the, 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 the stuff you're looking at building in? Yeah, I think, I mean, this is the space of creative tools. And I think what you're trying to do is build new tools to allow people to take those tools and then turn them into creative ways of storytelling that you might not have even expected in the first place. And that's kind of hard because you don't know what you're going to get at the onset. But, you know, we've seen this happen. We actually, here's a, connecting the dots a bit. We have this app called Threads, which is just focused on sharing with your close friends. It has what we call, um, well, it has captions basically. So it automatically captions your videos and writes them out. And it just happens to bleep out curses, both in the text and in the audio. It blew up over Thanksgiving because a bunch of TikTok stars thought it was cool. And literally Threads was the number one store in the app store on iOS in the US on Thanksgiving day, because people were excited about that tool as a funny way of making funny videos, which is not what it was written to do at all. So, but that I think is exciting. I think we have to get better at building more powerful and more creative tools that aren't necessarily a, you know, meme or a sort of moment in a package, but rather give people who are more creative than us and who make content for a living, the ability to make something that's going to, that's going to pop. One of the things uh, with Instagram creators uh, in general is their ability to monetize has expressed itself in, in many different ways, but there's so no, there's no native monetization to Instagram the way there is with YouTube, the way there sort of is with TikTok with their fund. I think Taylor Lawrence had a story in the Times today. Snapchat is just giving lottery money out to people who go viral. Have you thought about yeah. native monetization for Instagram influencers? Yeah. So I think there's a bunch of different ways in which we can help creators monetize. They really fall into three buckets. The first is commerce. So I think there's multiple pieces to commerce. There's branded content, which, by the way, is the economic engine behind most of the creator ecosystem today. But there's also affiliate marketing, so just you know specific products that you could just buy online. And there's merchandise. And I think there's a bunch of interesting stuff we can do across all three of those. But that's all within just the bucket of commerce. Then there's... I don't know what to call it, but essentially like user pay products. So things like tipping or, you know, subscriptions or exclusive content. And I think that's pretty exciting. And also I kind of like a little bit more because maybe it's not as big an industry, but it doesn't feel like a tax. You know, when Steph Curry, you know, plugs a Brita water filter, that kind of feels like a tax on the experience. Whereas if I could pay Steph for like some exclusive content, that feels more like a, like a win. And then there's a third bucket, which is just rev share. And that 
is most relevant probably for creator um, for video creators, but I think there's other things that we could do for non-video creators too. And I want to make sure that we build meaningful services across all of those buckets, because if we want to be the number one place for creators, uh, we need to make sure that we offer a suite of services that they find meaningful and valuable, as opposed to just one real type of value, which is distribution, which is inevitably going to be in, unstable. And I don't like having all of our eggs in one basket. So the eggs in one basket piece of the puzzle is really interesting to me. Instagram, is, it feels like the platform that is trying to have the most modes of creative expression, right? And that's like, there's the grid, which is the Instagram core product, which is what drove the growth in the beginning. But then there's stories and like LinkedIn has stories now, like the world has stories, but you have those two. And then you have IGTV. Interest of stories. It's ridiculous. <laughs> Stories is like, I, I don't, it's like the new away message or something. You just have to have it. But then you have fleets now. Okay. You got fleets on, on Twitter. I've never opened a fleet. I, I, I'll put that out there and I don't think I ever will. But then you've also got IGTV, which is like kind of in the YouTube zone. And I've got reels, which is kind of in the TikTok zone. Can you like have it all? Can you do all of those things? Because the biggest and most successful platforms, Instagram included, have driven the majority of their growth with a focused with one focus sharing dynamic? I think you run the risk of spreading yourself too thin and not doing anything that well if you try to do too many things. And that's something that we worry about, which is another reason why I think it's important that we look for opportunities to consolidate ideas and products. But I do think there's a lot of examples of products that have been really successful despite the fact that they do way more things. I mean, the Facebook app is much bigger than Instagram and it does a lot of things. But if you look towards, you know, Asia, like you see a bunch of apps, you know, like, you know, WeChat from Tencent and others that do even more things than Facebook and are incredibly successful. Now, maybe Asia is different or maybe China is different in that specific example, or maybe it's a bellwether. It's hard to say. I don't want us to do too many things, though, to be clear. I think that over time, we're going to differentiate by focusing on less things. I think we're going to focus on visual communication. And yes, there'll be different types, but like it really just sort of embrace that. And we're going to focus on commerce. In terms of the audience, we're going to focus on young people and we're going to focus on creators. We're looking for opportunities to do less and do it better. But last year was, in a lot of ways, reacting to the world and placing a bunch of new bets. This year has to be about delivering on those commitments and simplifying the experience. This the, uh, I lifted the social platforms do one thing well and they drive a growth strategy from uh, a guy named Mark Zuckerberg. Um, who wrote that in an email uh, to mm -hmm. his board members when he was thinking about buying Instagram. And he said, we've got to buy a new sharing dynamic. Instagram is the one I want to buy. And that has led itself to an antitrust lawsuit, 48 states, the federal government. I'm curious for your read on that. But I want to ask just a much simpler abstract question. We started this conversation by talking about TikTok, your competitor. Yeah. And like whether you can be as relevant as TikTok. Like there's obviously some competition in the market. If I went to the CEO of Ford and said, I don't like the F-150, he'd be like, great. It's the best. Even though it's the best selling vehicle for like 40 some years, he'd be like, great, go buy a Chevy. And that would be the end of that conversation. Why doesn't it feel like we can say that to Facebook and Instagram at the base level? Why does it feel like that is different? What's your perception of that conversation? I think it's because of a few things, but it's, I'm trying to find the thread. I think the thread is no matter who you are 
or not a mayor, but for a bunch of people or a bunch of different groups of people or constituents, social media is just deeply involved in your life or in what you do. So if you are a politician, a big part of engaging with your constituency now is on social media. And so like that is a shift in power that is probably fundamentally uncomfortable. If you're in the media or you're in the news industry, obviously the internet has turned the business models of the news industry on their head. And a lot of news is distributed through platforms like Facebook and Twitter. And again, there's a shift in power there. And so it's not something you're going to let go. And if you're just a normal person, you know, you use Instagram or, you know, iMessage or Snapchat or TikTok or whatever it is, maybe not TikTok, but the other three to connect in a very personal way with the people who matter most to you in your life. So it's a very intimate involvement. And so it's harder to step away and to say, you know, I'm just going to buy a Silverado and not an F-150. And I think that is, that's like the emotional side. The rational side is, look, we're large. There's a lot of people who use our platform. That means that we have a lot of responsibility and it's important to, that we as a society scrutinize that and figure out what the right regulation is and what the right long-term healthy state is. But I think this is not a new story. I mean, every new technology is gone through these waves. First, there's sort of elation. Everyone's like, this is awesome and new. And then everyone's freaked out about it for a while. And then you get to some sort of stable state. And that happened with, you know, VHS. And that happened with, you know, writing. If you want to go back and you want to talk about Plato, that happened with bicycles. People were skeptical of bicycles, which I didn't even know until recently. So we're just in that, we're in that phase. And I think that's, like I said before, uncomfortable, but fundamentally healthy. There's a great book. It's called uh, Brilliant, The Evolution of Artificial Light. It's about the mass amount of controversy over the color temperature of lighting when electric lights came out. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think about that a lot. Uh, the last episode of Decoder, I, I was talking to Daphne Keller, who is at the Stanford Cyber Policy Center, about platform regulation, content moderation. And she pointed out to me over and over again, the content moderation debate is deeply connected to the competition debate. Outside of the, the antitrust lawsuit, do you think there's enough competition for Facebook, for Instagram, for your services? Are you too big or do you feel the pressures of competition? Yeah, I think we have a lot of competition. I mean, our core reason to be is to connect people with their friends. That's the primary reason why people use Instagram. They stay to be inspired, but you know, if you look at the research, one of the core use cases is just like sharing with your close friends. That is all the growth in that world, or not all, but most of the growth in that world or in that business is in messaging. So I think that mean messaging presents an existential threat to broadcast-based, you know, social media products like feeds or stories. How are you looking at like the explosive rise in Signal this week? Is that on your radar? Like, oh, this is a big threat? Uh, I mean, Signal's definitely on our radar. Telegram is way bigger than Signal. iMessage is way bigger than Telegram. I mean, and so I, I think there's just a ton of competition in the messaging space, particularly here in the US. And I think that's you know, scary, but important. And, you know, we're trying to figure out how we can offer the most compelling messaging product that we can given, you know, particularly with iMessage in a country like the US where iPhones are so dominant, it's default installed. They don't have to ask for your notification, the permission to send you notifications. And it just sort of like works out of the box. How can we offer, how can we compete with that is tough. So I think we have a lot of competition one last question for you. What's next for Instagram? Obviously, there's next week, and that's difficult and a lot of focus. But over the course of 2021, what should people be looking for? I mean, this year, it's going to be about delivering on the bets that we made last year. It's going to be about 
getting reels to a good place and starting to differentiate it more. It's going to be about shopping, particularly shopping through the eyes of creators, which we think is part of the future of shopping. It's going to be about just what we've always been about, you know, creative expression. But we're really going to be looking to double down on the new things we launched last year before we start to add a bunch more things. There's so much stuff that would be fun to build that we haven't even started yet. But I really think we have a responsibility to make what we've already committed to great before we take on much that's new. Thanks again to Adam Maseri today. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Today's episode was produced by Sophie Erickson and Andrew Marino. Our music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. See you soon. With the arrival of a new year, it's not a bad time for a mental health check-in. Maybe you'd like to give therapy a try for the first time, or you're feeling ready to try it again. Whatever the case, BetterHelp is here for you with licensed online counselors who are trained to listen and help in areas like family and relationship conflict, depression, self-esteem, anxiety, and more. Whatever you're feeling, BetterHelp can help you navigate it. Talk to your counselor in a private online environment at your own convenience. BetterHelp counselors specialize in areas like family and relationship conflict, LGBTQ matters, self-esteem, and more. Whatever you're feeling, BetterHelp can help you navigate it. If you think professional help could ease whatever you're going through right now, check out BetterHelp. First, you'll fill out a questionnaire to assess your needs, and then they'll match you with a counselor in under 48 hours. You can exchange unlimited messages with your counselor in addition to your scheduled video and phone sessions, and everything you share is confidential. BetterHelp is an affordable option. Get started today at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Talk to a therapist online and get help today.